Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Anybody go for a run this morning? Raise your hand if you went for a run. You got up on Easter morning, a treadmill or a track or trail. That's amazing. I, uh, I thought about going for a run today, and then I realized I hate that, and that's not something I do. I know that's shocking because I look like a guy that likes to run, but uh, I just put off that vibe. Honestly, I haven't run since the mid-90s probably. Um, but apparently it's something people do, and some people even run for free. Um, or maybe you've even paid to run before. How many of you like entered a 5K or a half marathon? Or Yeah, you guys, <laughs> this is amazing to me. You know how you can tell if someone's run a marathon? Don't worry, they'll tell you. Um, you know where the idea of running a marathon comes from, right? Like from ancient Greece, and there's this battle that's happening in... And uh, they sent a messenger from the town of Marathon, the 26.2 miles to the city of Athens to tell everybody what's going on. And so this guy does it, he runs it, and he announces the message, and then he dies. And somebody's like, you know what, we should make that a thing. Like, we should get a bunch of people together, put on short shorts, run 26 miles, and see if anybody dies. But... People do it. People, even adults, run, I guess. So, um, and if you're one of those amazing people that went for a run this Easter morning, uh, whether you know it or not, that's exactly what happened on the very first Easter morning. As if you didn't already think you were better than us. You're not just more physical, you're also, or more spiritual, you're also more physical. So, um, the passage that Medell just read for us is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 20. And uh, the text is printed in your bulletin if you want to follow along and don't have a Bible uh, nearby. I'd encourage you to do that. And John is one of the biblical accounts of what happened on the very first Easter. And this particular account of the first Easter um, was given by a guy by the name of John, the Apostle John, who, when he had been a young man, was one of Jesus' very first disciples. But then, as an old man, maybe 80 or 90 years old, he's now sitting down and writing a gospel account, or essentially a spiritual biography of Jesus of Nazareth. And what's cool is that John isn't writing this account as a historian who's piecing together uh, journal entries and yearbook photos and that sort of thing. He's writing as an eyewitness. He's giving a firsthand account describing what he saw with his own eyes during the three years he spent by Jesus' side. And what's even cooler is that John wasn't only Jesus' disciple. We also know that he was Jesus' best friend. They had this special bond, this special kind of relationship, to the point that just before Jesus dies, he needs somebody who's going to look after his aging mother, and he asks John to do it. That's the kind of friendship that they had. And so again, now John is an old man looking back over his life, and specifically this morning, retelling the story of the day that he found out that his best friend was actually the savior of the world. 
So our passage today, starting in verse 1, takes place early in the morning on the first day of the week, which is Sunday, which is why we, along with Christians all around the world, celebrate the life that we have in Christ on Sundays. Jesus had been crucified and buried on Friday, two days earlier. The next day, Sabbath, was uh, Saturday, and these devout Jews wouldn't have come to visit Jesus' grave or near a dead body on the Sabbath, but now it's Sunday morning, and some of Jesus' followers go to visit his grave. And they're not expecting much. They're going to visit the grave the same way you or I would go and visit the grave of someone we know and love who had passed away. But they're in for a huge surprise. And that's why there was so much running on the first Easter morning. So let's get into the story um, by meeting the, the three main characters quickly. First, we have a woman by the name of Mary Magdalene. Now, there's lots of Marys in the Bible. And so John makes sure that, he, that we know as his readers that he's not talking about G, uh, Jesus' mother Mary or any of the other Marys. Mary Magdalene is Mary who was from the city of Magdala. And what we know about Mary from Magdala is that before she had become a follower of Jesus, she had, let's say, lived a pretty shady life. Luke's gospel tells us that at one point she had seven demons cast out of her. And whatever you think about that diagnosis, think about what kind of person would be described as being demon-possessed. It's somebody who wanders through the streets talking to themselves, hearing voices, shouting out to the sky, someone who's probably dirty, probably homeless, probably a social outcast. That's who Mary had been. And now she's not only the first of Jesus' disciples to find his empty tomb, but she is also the very first person ever to announce Christ's resurrection to the world. And this is a big deal. Not only does Jesus choose someone with a pretty sketchy past to be his messenger to the world, but he chooses a woman instead of a man. So the first Easter sermon was preached by a woman. And if you pay attention to the way that Jesus interacts with women throughout the Gospels, then this isn't surprising. He's constantly elevating women, affirming women, empowering women. So much so that I would say that if our version of Christianity that we practice is bad news for women, then we're probably doing it wrong. And today, though, we would look and we would see Jesus' view of women, and we would celebrate it as a display of God's heart for justice and the dignity of every human being. But this wasn't actually seen as good news at the time. In fact, it was one of the biggest knocks against Christianity in the ancient world. There was this one ancient Greek philosopher uh, named Celsus who was adamantly opposed to the message and movement of Christianity. And he wrote these long philosophical rants trying to expose Christian belief as irrational and idiotic. And one of his main attacks on Christianity was Mary Magdalene. And the fact that Christians had based their belief in the resurrection on the testimony of a woman. So here's what he actually wrote early in the second century. We must, we must examine this question, whether anyone who really died ever rose again with the same body. But who saw this? He says, a hysterical female 
who either dreamt in a certain state of mind or wanted to impress others by telling this fantastic tale. Now, this would have been a common view in the ancient day, that men were reasonable and women were hysterical. And this, so much so that a testimony of a woman wouldn't even be considered admissible evidence in court. And so, one of the earliest criticisms of Christianity is that it had too high a view of women. Which means that the only reason you would say that it was a woman who was the first to find Jesus' tomb empty, the only reason you would put that into your historical narrative account was if it actually happened. In addition to John, all the other Gospels clearly tell us that the first witnesses of Jesus' resurrection, they were all women. But that, as we know, didn't stop the story from spreading. Today, as we stand, there's over 2.2 billion Christians in the world, and it all started with a woman from Magdala named Mary. Next, we have Peter, also known as Simon Peter. And Peter is the disciple of Jesus who seems to just not quite get it most of the time, right? Like he's got a big personality. He's constantly putting his foot in in his mouth. And in fact, just a few days before this, Peter was the disciple who looked Jesus in the eye and said, I'm going to stick by your side no matter what. I'm going to follow you to the grave, Jesus. And we know that within just a few hours, Jesus gets arrested, and Peter starts telling people that he's never even met the guy. In fact, three times that night, Peter denies even knowing Jesus right after pledging his allegiance to him. And so the last time we saw Peter in John's gospel is when the rooster crowed that third time. So Peter's constantly screwing things up. Like when the Roman soldiers had come to arrest Jesus, who, by the way, Jesus was pretty well known as an advocate for nonviolence. And Peter wants to defend Jesus, so he pulls out a sword and chops this guy's ear off. And Jesus is like, Peter, what are you doing with a sword? Like, you remember all that stuff I said about loving your enemies and turning to the other cheek and that sort of thing? Like, when I said love your enemies, I didn't mean chop their ears off. Like, Peter, what are you even doing? You don't bring a sword to hang out with Jesus. It's like bringing bacon to a bar mitzvah. Like, do you even understand what we're doing here? And so Peter kind of gets the side eye from Jesus as he reattaches this poor guy's ear. So that's Peter, and that's who my parents named me after, which is great. And the last character that we meet is John. Now, if you're paying close attention here, you'll notice that John's name doesn't actually appear in the text of the story in front of you, but Bible scholars are basically unanimous that this is who the third character is. And the reason is that in this culture, if you were going to write a formal narrative about an an event in which you had been involved, you wouldn't write it from the first-person perspective. What you would do is come up with some sort of code name or some sort of title to refer to yourself without speaking in the first person. And so that's what John does throughout this gospel, the whole book. He comes with a, up with a title to refer to himself, and it kind of tells us something about him. So what's the title that he comes up with? It's right there in verse 2. Mary comes running to Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. 
which is just so great, right? Like, I'm sure the, all, all the other disciples are like, really, John? That's the title you chose, right? <laughs> like, you didn't say the son of Zebedee or the brother of James like a normal person. You're like the disciple that Jesus loved. Good for you. And this makes the story even more interesting, though, because now we know that this unnamed character is actually John, who is the author of the book. And so it changes the way that you understand the details that are kind of sprinkled through the story. Like in verse 3, so Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. So John just feels like it's important for us to know that. As he's recounting the story of the redemption of humanity, he wants to make sure that history will note that he is in fact a faster runner than Peter. That detail is very important to him. And he keeps going. He's not done yet. He gets to the tomb and he's standing at the entrance in verse six. It says, then Simon Peter came along behind him. So John's again going, in case you forgot, I was there for like an hour before the other guy finally caught up. And he's not done yet. Peter goes to the tomb to check it out. And then in verse eight, it says, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. So John's like, let's not focus on who went into the tomb first. Let's focus on who got to the tomb first. That's really what's important here. I just love it. Um, again, John's not writing as a historian or as a journalist. He's not writing this as a mythologist who wants to sell a supernatural tale. He's writing as an eyewitness. He's telling his story. And so those are our three characters, Peter or Mary, Peter, and John, three real people with real personalities and real issues. Next, I want to show you how even though these three characters are all looking at the same thing, they don't see the same thing. And we have to do a little bit of Greek to get there. So let me show you. In verse 1, it says that Mary went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed. Okay, and then in verse 6, it says that Peter went into the tomb and saw the strips of linen. And then in verse 8, it says that John went inside and he saw and believed. All three of them saw. But here's what's interesting. In this passage, there are actually three different Greek words that are used, and they're all translated as saw in our English Bibles which isn't a huge deal, like it doesn't disrupt the basic meaning of the text at all, but it does mean that we might not be picking up everything that John is laying down. Mary saw, Peter saw, John saw, but they each saw in a different way. So for Mary, in verse 1, the Greek word for saw is blepo, blepo. This is the most obvious literal word for seeing. It means to look at something with your eyes, to notice it, to be aware of it, to accept it at face value. That's how Mary saw the tomb. Because notice how quickly she begins to jump to conclusions about what has happened to Jesus' body. She sees the stone rolled away, and then without asking any questions, she immediately starts running and starts telling people that someone has stolen the body. She sees and then she reacts. So that's how Mary saw the empty tomb, blepo. For Peter, in verse 6, when it says that he saw the strips of linen lying there, the Greek word is theoreo. If you're, taking, if you're taking notes, it's just spelled the Oreo, like the cookie. You can just write that down. That's helpful for me. And theoreo is where we get our word for theory. 
So to theoreo is to theorize. It's to look at something, to think about it, to analyze it, to try and figure it out. It's essentially rationality. And that's what, that's what Peter's doing. He sees that these burial clothes are still left in the tomb, and he's analyzing that moment and trying to figure out what's going on. He's going, okay, wait. So if someone broke in to rob the grave, why would they take Jesus' body but leave all this expensive stuff? This is like $150,000 of valuable like perfumes and aloes and uh, herbs and spices and linens. Like, Why would grave robbers do that? But on the other hand, if it was Jesus' disciples who came, and stole his body, why would they dishonor him by taking his body naked? Peter's analyzing, trying to make sense of this. And then he notices even more that these burial clothes aren't just left, but they're like neatly arranged. And he's going, why on earth would somebody take the body, but then nicely fold up all these linens? Like, unless these are the most polite robbers of all time who like break your window to steal your TV, but take their shoes off so they don't get your your rug muddy. Like it just doesn't make sense. Peter's going, what is this? He's looking for a rational explanation. That's the way he sees. And by the way, notice that the Bible doesn't speak of this kind of seeing in a negative light. It's okay to be skeptical. It's okay to have questions about life and about God and about faith. And I think we all know that there's some versions of Christianity that discourage asking hard questions. But the Bible isn't like that. The Bible encourages it. So Peter, this is how he saw the empty tomb. Theoreo. And then finally for John in verse 8, the word for saw is idon. Idon. And this is another way of seeing. It's to see something and to understand. You don't just look at it. You don't just think about it. Idon is when you see it and you get it. It's like the way we say, um, do you see what I mean? Or I see what you did there. You don't just see the thing. You see the meaning behind the thing, which is why it says that when John went to the tomb, he saw and believed. Not just that Jesus' body was gone, but that there was something else going on here. Something bigger was happening. So that's how John saw the empty tomb, Idon. So Mary, Peter, and John, they're all looking at the same thing, but they're not all seeing the same thing. And I think these three ways of seeing have a lot to do with a lot of our lives. There's an architect by the name of Matthew Frederick who wrote a book called 101 Things I Learned in Architecture School. And one of the ideas that he talks about is that when it comes to the way that we view the world, there are different levels of knowing or understanding. In fact, he says that there are three levels of knowing. The first level of knowing is simplicity. This is the way that a child views the world, fully engaged in their own experience, blissfully unaware of all that they don't know. And then the second level of knowing is complexity. This is the way an adult views the world, understanding that life is complicated and things aren't quite as simple as they appear. And the third level of knowing is what he calls informed simplicity. This is the worldview of the so-called enlightened person, 
Someone who's done the work and chewed on the complexity long enough to be able to synthesize all the complicated variables into simple terms and concepts. So three levels of knowing. Simplicity, complexity, and informed simplicity. So it's an architectural concept, but I think at the same time, it's not that complicated. Like, think about any time you have to learn a new skill or a new sport. I've been trying to work on my golf game recently. I am a terrible golfer. Um, I shouldn't say that. I can't drive the ball very far, but my short game is really bad. Um, just like, I just like, it's like the only sport we don't have to run. But if you're going to explain to somebody how you play the game of golf, you'd say it's actually really easy. You just hit this ball into that hole and that's kind of it. And that would actually be true, right? Like technically it is a very simple game and you see somebody do it on TV and you're like, yeah, that looks pretty easy. I could do that. But then you get out there and you try and it's this whole other story. You start to realize this might not be quite as easy as I thought. There's a lot more that I need to pay attention to. And I'm not even talking about playing a round of golf. I'm talking about just like learning how to swing a golf club. Like you have to pay attention to your stance and your grip and your timing and the position of your feet and the angle of the club and all this stuff. And what you once thought was simple now feels overwhelming, overwhelmingly complex. But then for some people, after maybe hundreds of hours of practice, after playing golf for years and years, all these complexities start becoming like second nature. You start developing muscle memory and you're able to synthesize all these angles and variables in a golf swing into something that if someone were to watch, they would say, yeah, that looks pretty easy. I think I could do that. And so you move from simplicity to complexity to simplicity, but it's not a naive simplicity. It's an informed simplicity. And so that's how Frederick's three levels of knowing work. The simplicity of a child leads to the complexity of an adult, to the informed simplicity of maturity. And his, his point is, essentially, that you don't really know something until you come to a place of knowing it with an informed simplicity. Which is basically what Einstein meant when he said, if you can't explain it to a six-year-old, then you don't understand it yourself. And so what I find fascinating is how these three levels of knowing overlay these three ways of seeing that we see in the story of the empty tomb. Three different people all experiencing the empty tomb in different ways. Blepo, Fioreo, Idon, simplicity, complexity, informed simplicity. So back to John. In our 10 verses this morning, our humble narrator, John, is the one who sees the empty tomb with an informed simplicity. And by the way, this isn't to take a shot at Peter or Mary. Mary was clearly the best disciple. But in this particular story, John is the one who sees and believes. He's the one who gets it. But what is it that he gets? What is it that he sees in the empty tomb? What is it that he believes? Well, if we go back towards the beginning of John's gospel, 
There's this famous story where Jesus finds that people had taken the temple and turned it into a racket. This place where God's presence dwelt on earth in a special, sacred way, and instead of the temple being a place for prayer and for worship, they had turned the temple into a corrupt place of commerce. And so Jesus gets angry, righteously angry, and he kicks over the tables and he drives everybody out. Then in in chapter 2, verse 18, John 2, 18, it says, Then the Jews responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. And then John, the author, remember, in verse 22 of chapter 2, gives a nod to his readers. It says, After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. They believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. Then they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. So this is at least part of what John believes when he sees the empty tomb. The claim that Jesus made was that the true temple, the ultimate temple of God, wasn't a building, but it was a person. Jesus claimed that he himself, in fact, his very body, was the temple of God, or in other words, the place where God's presence dwelt on earth. Simply put, Jesus claimed that he was God come to us as a human. And it's an outrageous claim for anyone to make. And it's an offensive claim to make to the Jews. And so they say, give us a sign. Prove it to us if you're going to talk such a big game. And Jesus says, all right, I'll give you a sign. Destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. And John looks in, sees the empty tomb, goes, ah, now I see. The resurrection of Jesus is his proof, his evidence, his sign that Jesus is who he said he is. I always think about it like this. You know how when you go through the checkout line at Costco, you have to get into another line before they let you leave the store? Because guarding the exit of every Costco is a security guard heavily armed with a pink highlighter. And you come up to them and they ask to see your receipt and they examine your receipt and then they look in your shopping cart. What are they looking for? They want to make sure that everything in your cart has been paid for. And if it all lines up, if it all checks out, They draw their weapon and give you the pink line of approval. And you have your receipt. And that receipt is proof that everything in your cart has been paid for and you never need to pay for it again. That receipt shows that the transaction was complete, that there were sufficient funds available and that you're free to go. 
See, most of us will eventually come to a place in life where we begin to understand that the problem with the world is not just that the world is broken, but that some of that brokenness has gotten into me. It's not just that the world isn't the way it's supposed to be and that life doesn't go the way that it should. It's that I'm not what I'm supposed to be. And I haven't lived the way I should. And we end up going through life feeling guilty, feeling ashamed, feeling powerless and weak. And it's like we want to change the world, but we can't even change ourselves. And this is why the Bible talks about this thing called sin like a prison or like a jail cell that we need to be broken out of. We can't get away from it no matter how hard we try. But the gospel of Jesus has something to say about this. The gospel says that Jesus Christ was the only person ever who has lived a morally perfect life and that his execution was the greatest perversion of justice in human history. But the gospel also says that his death was the greatest act of sacrificial love that the world has ever known. And that somehow through the suffering, death, and burial of Christ, Jesus absorbed all of our sins and he paid the price for them. That Jesus' death on the cross was the payment for our sins and it's God's way of freeing us from the guilt and shame and the powerlessness that we feel by forgiving us and redeeming us and loving us. So that sounds great in theory, that Jesus paid for the sins of the world on the cross, but it'd be nice to have a sign. It'd be nice to have some evidence. It'd be nice to have a receipt, a proof of payment. And God has given us one. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is our receipt. It's the ultimate sign that our debts have been paid, that our sins have been forgiven, and that we are free to live, that everything in your cart has been paid for and will never need to be paid for again. This is part of what it means to begin to look at the tomb with an informed simplicity, to see and to believe. So what about you? What do you see? What do you believe? Think about this story specifically. Because whether you affirm the Easter claim or not, you can't deny that this story has shaped the world we live in more than any other event in history. And obviously, there's lots of controversy surrounding the question of whether or not Jesus actually physically, bodily rose from the dead. But the one piece of the story that's really not debated at all is whether or not the tomb was empty. Virtually all historians, Christian or non, hold to the empty tomb of Jesus as a historical fact. Now, why the tomb was empty? That's where the debate gets heated. But the truth is, at some point, every single person in this park is going to have to make up their mind about why that tomb was empty. And whatever you decide about that 
is going to have radical implications for the rest of your life and all eternity. So let me tell you what I believe. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, descended to hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. And I believe in the Holy Spirit and the holy Catholic or universal church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. That is what I believe. And as I say those words, some of you hear them and you say, yeah, that sounds pretty good. I accept that. That face value, good to go. And others of you hear those words and say, I have some questions for you, Pete. You're skeptical and understandably so. And some of you hear those words and maybe in a way you can't quite explain, your heart leaps out of your chest. Because those aren't just words to you. And Jesus isn't just an idea to you. He is your very life. Your very identity. He's your best friend. And you aren't just some random person to him. You know that you're the one that Jesus loves. And so my hope and prayer this morning is that every one of you will come to see and believe the good news of the empty tomb. And that's not something that I can make happen. That's something that only God can do. But if you're here this morning and you don't believe this story, I want you to believe it. I want you to see what I see. I want you to meet the Jesus I know, the Jesus who's saved the world and who's saving me. And if you've got questions, ask them. Don't just use them as an excuse to justify your unbelief. God is fully prepared to field anything that you want to throw his way. If you don't believe this story, man, I hope that you will. Or maybe you want to believe it, but you just are having a hard time. And you would find yourself praying along with the man who met Jesus, Lord, I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Pray that today, if that's your prayer. Or finally, maybe you're here this morning and you do believe this story. If that's you, I want you to believe it more. I want you to let it sink deeper and deeper into your being. I want you to move towards seeing Jesus with an informed simplicity and allowing him to reorient every single part of your life and identity around his gospel and his kingdom.
If you don't believe, I hope that you will. If you want to believe, I hope that you'll ask God to help you overcome your unbelief. If you do believe, I hope that you believe it more. Acts 16 says that if you believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. That was true then. That is true today. The tomb is empty, my friends. Believe the good news. Will you stand and pray with me as the band comes to lead us in a closing set of worship? Lord Jesus Christ, We acknowledge you today in the middle of this beautiful city that we love as the risen king who has overcome sin, death, and hell, who has paid the price for the sins of the world and has risen again victoriously defeating our greatest enemies. We thank you that you are raising the dead in us that you are transforming our lives, that you are discipling us into people who bear your image by the power of your spirit. Lord, we want to believe in you. We want to see you as you really are. Help us overcome our unbelief. Help us believe the good news more than we ever have. And help us to live and to embody this message as your Easter people seeing the redemption, the rescue, and the reconciliation of all things happening in us, among us, and all around us until that day when you come again and you do for the entirety of your creation what happened to your body in that grave. Lord Jesus, you are risen. You are rising, raising us up as well. We love you, we worship you, we confess you as Lord, as Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.